Yo, Saxon here. Just with a quick note that today's episode will be the live show of the five-year anniversary of Penny Fractions. Our good friend David Turner decided to celebrate by having a live show in Brooklyn, New York, along with Sam, Liz Pelly, and Sherry Hu. Of course, I was not there because in what I am not calling a midlife crisis, I've moved halfway across the world currently. But if you weren't there like me, you're in luck. You get to hear the live show on today's episode. So enjoy okay cool so let's get this thing started um sam do you want to go sure yeah hey everybody um i'm sam backer uh he him um and i am one of the co-hosts of money for nothing uh saxon my other co-host is in berlin which is his questionable life decision and is not my fault (laughs) um i'm incredibly excited to be here today to celebrate uh the fifth anniversary of Penny Fractions. Um, right? Right? Yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, I know that uh, David and his work have been an inspiration and like a critical voice and a generous guide in uh, a world that has like very much needed it. Um, and certainly a <laughs> world of music writing that has very much needed it. And certainly Money for Nothing wouldn't be uh, anything like what it is without... Uh, his example, so incredibly pumped to be here. Um, Wait, can I give like two words on you? Sure. I just want to say, yeah, Money for Nothing is one of my favorite podcasts. There are a lot of great podcasts. I mean, Arn Labor is great. Please listen to Arn Labor, if we were just listening earlier. But one of the things I really appreciate about Money for Nothing is that it takes the music industry so seriously. Some much more seriously, seriously than I feel like the music industry actually takes up itself. And I also feel like it's like a podcast I've like cited numerous times in my newsletter. Because like I said earlier, that like when Sam and, and Saxon did a show about the rece- about like a looming recession in June, that really got my mind sort of like sort of thinking about a lot of these topics and got me sort of realizing like, oh yeah, it is kind of strange that like this entire streaming era has existed within one economic paradigm that may have changed. So. I really, really appreciate that. So yeah, folks, definitely check out the show. Thank you, thank you, David, um, and the other members. We have an incredibly stacked lineup, uh, and if you know, you know. Um, <laughs> we have on my right uh, Sherhu of Water and Music. Woo! Hello, glad to be here. Um, on my left, I have uh, Liz Pelly, who has said she's a writer and writing a book about streaming that I'm so pumped to read so please i don't know where you are in that book writing process but like please finish <laughs> publish it faster <laughs> thank you also uh while we're doing these intros i just wanted to say i've learned so much from everyone on this panel over the years so it's just an honor to be in conversation with you all and also other people in this room this is a room full of so many smart people this is really fun <laughs> so pat yourself on the back <laughs> all of you um yeah, so yeah, we are so smart. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it, it's really it's a, a cool moment to be here and kind of reflect on the last five years of David's work because, like he just said, um, we're really moving out of the moment that produced a, a lot of the things that uh, a lot of the trends, a lot of the narratives. That, that he and that a lot of people here have, have been describing and been analyzing. Um, but even as that moment seems like it's starting to, to shift in, in some pretty profound ways, a lot of the kind of deeper structural analysis 
the uh, figuring out patterns, figuring out trends, figuring out dynamics that these folks have been doing in like really exemplary in different ways um, really remains uh, an incredibly useful way to think about what's going to be coming next. And so um, we're kind of going to be doing that a little bit today. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about like <laughs> what's happening, <laughs> and we're going to talk a little bit about like <laughs> what might happen, and then we're going to talk a little bit about <laughs> what just happened. Um, so I guess to start with, to, to lay the scene, I, I wanted to kick it to you, David, to explain um, like what the end of soft money is doing to my favorite uh, like extractive, exploitative system slash techno-affiliated Ponzi scheme, colon, the music industry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so like I was, so my last newsletter was about sort of, I get, it was a two-parter where the first part was just sort of talking about trying to sort of pull from actually a piece that was written by this writer, this writer Gabriel, I think, Mayer, that was called Sound Money, where basically Gabriel sort of tried to trace sort of the like history, the last basically 40 years of financialization of the music industry. Gabriel cited a lot of my own work and sort of started this kind of around the Sony's purchase of CBS Records in the late 80s. Um, sorry, I'm looking at my other game. <laughs> sorry. Um, but yeah, Sony, like, Sony pur purchased the CBS Records in the late 80s. I actually kind of dated a little bit back to like Thorn, like I forget, I like, like Thorn purges of EMI records from like in the 1979. Actually, to me, is like a slightly earlier version of technology of a non-music firm buying a, a music um, a music company. Anyway, so basically, I wrote a very brief history of that just to sort of explain that, like, hey, basically from like the late 70s until around the or before the financial crisis, there was sort of a slow financialization of the music industry where private equity firms and sort of and sort of big banks started making investments and buying up sort of like labels. So the classic example to me is sort of like Warner Music being basically picked apart by like a handful of different private equity firms, including Bain Capital of um, Mitt Romney fame. So that happened in like 2004. Um, and then Gabriel made a distinction between that era and then the post-financial crisis era of around 08, where all of a sudden, instead of these companies sort of buying up record labels, it ended up being that they started investing in sort of sound, like song catalogs. So that's where you sort of get the sort of headlines of like Bob Dylan or Bruce Springsteen selling all their, sell, selling off their catalogs. Bob getting his money. So much money. So much money. And so what I wanted, and the reason I wanted to give this context, this historical context was basically because as we sort of are seeing sort of the effects of the Federal Reserve raising interest rates and, and engaging in quantitative tightening, we're not, okay, so the last time Sam talked about it on this show, Sam was like, we're not going to get too deep into explaining how the Federal Reserve works. We're also tonight not going to get too deep into how the Federal Reserve works, because I don't think anyone wants that. There's a discount window. I don't get yeah, it. Yeah, we're not getting it's into it. We're not getting into it. It's not like we're not going to get into it, into it. But because of the last, basically, yeah, like since March, the Federal Reserve and Central banks across the globe have been raising interest rates and engaging in quantitative tightening, which has been very disruptive to a very particular part of the music industry so far. And that has basically sort of been this song catalog sort of like, like section. And also, as we're sort of seeing right now in sort of the more crypto-y space, and also sort of tech firms. So basically, the highly speculative parts of the music slash tech industry have been the first ones to sort of feel a lot of these sort of ripple effects. But... The other thing I think that, and so that's been kind of the headline news, and we're going to do a little bit, I guess, like uh, scene filling in, and then we're going to kind of dive further into it. But like, that's been kind of the headline news, right? And what Dave was kind of alluding to, though, is that the last 15 years, give or take, of all of our lives have existed in a weird space post-2008 of incredibly cheap money, 
for all kinds of corporations, right? The previous panel, uh, previous podcast, we're talking about um, Uber and the way that that company could make no money despite, could both change everyone's lives and make no money or make no profits, rather. And the point is that they were making money because they could pull in massive flows of global capital because money was really, really cheap. And it does seem like we're leaving that moment and so the first ones to hit it, like David's saying, I think, um, are these crypto companies, are these highly speculative ones, but also, like, let's talk about the music industry over the past 15 years, which has been the, the kind of classic narrative is it nearly died, uh, allegedly. Um, certainly, <laughs> no one was buying CDs anymore. I mean, some people were buying CDs. I mean, sure. I, well, I, in this room, maybe, but yeah. Also, I will. I, I want to be the the nerd because I always want to say it's like. Also, other countries kept buying CDs. Like most, like true. Let's hear for Germany, right? Yeah, Germany kept buying CDs until very Japan. recently. In Japan, yeah, Japan really just stopped buying. I mean, they still do, but they just really stopped buying CDs. I say stop. I can. Sorry, I'm like seeing friends give faces. Um, but it's like, yeah, <laughs> Japan still buys CDs at a fairly high rate. So I just want to say that like the United States is kind of a sort of fun use case. Of like, or a special case where we were like, yeah, our industry very much tried to get rid of that format. But, but, but it, it, I guess uh, different countries, different dynamics, and relationship <laughs> to CDs aside, David. Sorry, I'm um, bad. in general, the the recovery for all of them has been the rise of various forms of streaming, which some folks here really, really know about, um, and. Like we've been saying, streaming has really been structured in many ways by these tech companies that have been able to similarly launder huge amounts of global capital. And so the question, I guess, for tonight and as part of the jumping off part of our conversation is like, okay, <laughs> maybe we'll see what happens with various kinds of crypto, with various kinds of speculative things. But like, what happens to Spotify if the money starts to dry up? Well, sh should I go in? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think one thing that is important to think about when thinking about that question is like you can think about what's going to happen to Spotify but like I'm way more interested in thinking about what happens to working musicians and for most working musicians like they Spotify hasn't been working for them like when you have the stat you know 80% of recorded music industry profits are tied to the tech industry like that doesn't really mean a lot for most working independent musicians because that music is not trickling down to them like every time there's a stat that's like you know the music industry is seeing unparalleled growth like that hasn't really meant anything to like most working musicians so I'm interested in this question of like you know what does it mean if the tech industry changes, what does it mean for the music industry? But in some ways for a lot of independent working musicians, um, artists operating on a small scale, making music where the goal is not mass consumption or how do I grow as big and fast as we can, like for those types of artists, um, there's already been a recession. Like, sure. you know, those types of artists haven't been getting any of this pool of 80% of recorded music coming from tech ever. Um, so I think it's just important to think like, I, I'm, I don't know, uh, when thinking about kind of like, you know, what it means for the future, like I like the idea of like, you know, strategizing how we make more resilient um, situations for working independent 
you know, what sometimes has been called like the musical middle class, but, um, you know, does it really, do we want to, you know, strategize for how Spotify continues to exist? Like, I don't know. Um, no. Does that make sense? No, it yeah. totally makes sense. And I guess my question is not like, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a free consultant for Spotify. <laughs> if, if there's a Spotify person and they want to pay me to be a consultant, <laughs> talk to me, I guess, outside later. <laughs> um, money for something, baby. <laughs> um, but I'm interested in saying, like, we're, I feel like, and I totally agree with everything you just said. Um, there's been a massive recession for the mu working musical class, the music middle class, a wide variety of artists who haven't been able to make a living for a long time. But at the same time, Spotify has shaped thinking about music as a commodity and music in people's lives and, and the way people build meaning and community and life experiences around recorded sound. Spotify and the other streaming services have been, you know, backed by <laughs> tech money have been central i think at least i mean uh, to my experience of music in the last 10 years and I'd, I'd guess a lot of people's experience of music in the last 10 years and like if that fundamentally changes it might be better it might be worse <laughs> but it'll be different i can give um some initial thoughts so uh thinking like historically so i started um covering music and tech as a freelance writer in around 2015. Um, and uh, there have been many music startups that have come and gone since then. Um, I guess Spotify launched um, in the US, I think, 2011. So it just celebrated its uh, decade, I guess, anniversary in the US um, last year. But looking at um, music startups in general, and I'll tie it back to Spotify, um, my hypothesis based on what I've seen is that as a music startup, you, uh, this is maybe cynical, you either uh, die or you live long enough to <laughs> pivot or get acquired by a bigger company um, that treats music as a loss leader. I think every music company, every like music tech startup, almost everyone, and please if there are exceptions, like I, I would love to hear them, like has gone in one of those directions. Um, and Spotify is like the biggest publicly traded example of like a company that is uh, really, really wants to, I think, not just be a music company. Like they've spent They're so much money. They're an audio company now, right? Yeah. They're an audio company. They're an they audio want to be company. the world's number one audio platform. Mm -hmm. They've spent so much money, very like traditional Hollywood style, trying to get huge celebrities like um, like Kim Kardashian, uh, like uh, Call Her Daddy, you know, to like do exclusive podcasts. Um, and I think they started really doing that like 2018, 2019, and like the jury's still out. Um, and like, yeah, and now we're, uh, they, they haven't really like spent a lot of money to do those like really big podcast deals and I think quite a long time. So it's just, it's, it's a big identity crisis. It's kind of how I understand where Spotify is now. Yeah, um, well, I guess to go back to the startup thing, because I actually do, it's, yeah, it's funny because I feel like music startups, like, is in particular, like, it's a funny zone because really they do, yeah, most of them either fail or they just get acquired by other companies. And often when they get acquired, they kind of just sort of get, like, subsumed into that company and just kind of, like, disintegrated out. Or maybe they kind of, like, just sort of take one part of the technology or one part of the thing and that sort of, like, continues to live onward. But, like, 
I yeah, I always find the ecosystem of music startups a little bit strange in that sense because it doesn't feel like these companies exist to actually be self-sustaining to sort of like exist on their own. They just kind of are, are they're just like external R and D basically for the industry like writ large. It's like oh, who's gonna pick up this? music AI company because they're, I don't know, even know what most of them actually even do, but there are like a lot of like music AI companies, same with like all the metaverse companies. Like I just saw like today that there was some metaverse company that was invested by Warner Music Group and I was just like, but like there are already so many metaverse companies, video games, there's so many metaverses, video games that why do we need more of them? But yeah, it's like, and it's like, what's the point of that company? It's probably ultimately to get bought out by just a bigger company in the end. It's not really like that's gonna be something that exists by itself at all. Um, this gets, uh, speaking of like financialization of the music industry, um, uh, yeah, in terms of like what a lot of music or like entertainment startups I realize are trying to do, I think um, the metaverse is a great example of this. Uh, at Water Music, we've been covering Web3 very extensively in the last couple of years. Um, it's like, uh, maybe this is another weird analogy, it's like, every uh, artist in that, or so many artists in that ecosystem are trying to become their own hypnosis, except what's being <laughs> traded is the brand and not the catalog. Cause like here you're talking, you're not talking about like the Bob Dylans of the world. You're talking about like artists who might maybe only have like two or three songs out, but they're already like uh, releasing NFTs. And like a lot of the language around it is the intention that like people can trade an artist's reputation from a very early stage. And like, um, it's it's just like such a fat, I think we're only starting to like scratch the surface of like what that means in terms of how very early stage artists see their careers long-term of like from a very early stage you're like financializing their brand in a way that is like so abstracted from the music itself. So, so just to be really clear, so what you're saying is that, that there's an increasing trend of artists who are saying, I'm gonna sell, you know, I am Jay, reasonable doubt era Jay-Z, and if you buy my NFT now, when I release the blueprint, that NFT will be quintupled in value. Yeah, I think that's a lot of um, the, the pitch uh, in terms of like, yeah, because when you think about like NFTs, the reason why a lot of artists are investing in things like NFTs are things like secondary royalties and like the secondary marketplace being able to funnel royalties back to the original creator, which is which is true. Like that is a benefit. Yeah. Um, uh, but yes, there's there's a lot of like promising being done to like rally people around the specific tech. Yeah. Well, I mean, so one thing I'm, I'm interested in, in what you were just saying about that a lot of music tech firms that have been founded right in, in this previous era, and we have to say that, that the conditions are really beginning to change, I'd imagine, for a lot of these firms, kind of had this, it seems like the kind of classic like tech scale idea for the m many of them, right? The idea that the, the way to make money as a tech firm is to make a product that starts really small and then gets really, really big. Um, and I'm wondering, I'm thinking some of the stuff that, that you've written about this, um, about like whether, if there is like a slowdown, like a cultural slowdown where all of a sudden you're not gonna be able to sell out your technically oriented idea for a lot of money really quickly and instead you're gonna have to build some sort of sustainable income and I'm not even trying to get into the like, you know, like moral capitalism or not situation, mm -hmm. but certainly the idea that you're gonna have to like actually connect with the community and like keep the lights on, not just with venture capital money 
I'm wondering if, if it some of that might connect with some of the, I know the, the more community oriented ideas that that uh, you've been playing around mm -hmm. with in, in, in your writing and, and in your research. Yeah, it's interesting. Something that as I've kind of been looping on, just like listening to this whole conversation so far, is that you know, I uh, I think a lot about something that. Our, uh, our friend Kevin Erickson from the Future of Music Coalition says a lot online, which is that using the phrase like the music industry can be really unproductive. And he o he's been sort of like repeatedly pointing out that like when you use the phrase the music industry, like you should push yourself to think of something more specific because there are so many things within that and so many different definitions of what that means. And there's so many different reasons why people pursue music and different approaches that people have to a career and like the independent like working artist who is trying to figure out how to like piece together a sustainable living through selling records and touring is like that's a much different economic equation and also just sort of like reason for pursuing music than like someone who's like how do I financialize my identity before I've even released more than like two songs so that someone can like buy the NFT of me in hopes of getting rich in like 10 years like those are completely different things <laughs> and it's yeah. good to like acknowledge that they're completely different things and that like our way of you know we we're talking about how like we're like passing it's like a, a moment that we're at a a changing moment and we're figuring out the way forward and like it's okay to be like there's different reasons why people get involved in music and there's different goals and like we're going to have different sort of like paths that we're on in figuring out like what a more sustainable music world looks like and like I think that all of the exploration of like web3 and digital experimentation and like um these sort of projects are really interesting and I think you know like we can explore these ideas and then also you know point to stuff like we just heard on the panel before like Music Workers Alliance working really hard to get this public funding for local artists in New York City like just want to take a moment like, that's like a really huge accomplishment and um, I also think it's important to point to as like you know, proof that like it is possible to kind of like as musicians who are like in solidarity with each other on a very local level um, to, you know, s figure out ways to kind of like get our public institutions and like local electeds to like care about putting public money into the arts um, in a meaningful way. Um, like there's proof of it, like it's not impossible, um, you know? So like you were saying, yeah, like the past couple of years I'd been sort of like doing some research on like where public institutions, like public libraries could like fit into the equation um, in terms of figuring out alternative ways of imagining locally focused digital projects where public money is being used to support artists. And oh, this is a good moment <laughs> to, um, okay, so. When uh, our friend Matt Dryhurst was on Money for Nothing earlier this year, um, he said that if you wanted to propose the idea of publicly funded streaming um, being funded by the government, that you should hand out that proposal with a free lollipop for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I brought some lollipops. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, 
Genius. Are we supposed to? Wow. Yeah, pass well, them around the crowd. Yeah. We can't eat them. It will impact audio quality. <laughs> That's how you know Sam's like a real audio person because my immediate thought was I'm putting this in my mouth. I'm putting this in my mouth. I so I'm told to not put this in my mouth. Um, so actually one thing. So amazing. <laughs> uh, yeah, also, yeah, I, I, I love that. I love that. <laughs> um, so one of the things that like Liz, as you're sort of, as you're sort of speaking to is I, it's something that I feel like as we've been, so as we've sort of like had a number of conversations about sort of like public libraries and sort of stuff like this, I, this sort of reminds me of sort of an idea that our that our sort of mutual friend like like Henderson Cole proposed, which is the idea of sort of this being like sort of a nationalized streaming service where like it's sort of like having basically sort of like a nationalized like Spotify where you can sort of like upload your music and have that sort of be sort of the way that you sort of like have sort of another, a more public alternative to the, a big major streaming platform, which I always thought was like a really cool idea. And also something I've been thinking a little bit more about again. I feel like I should have said this in the last pod, but again, it's like, or I said it, but more c concretely, it's like my day job is, yeah, it's like I'm a business, my, my title at SoundCloud is, biz is business strategy. And like, so I just think about this stuff a lot, but I feel like my like point of view is very like business. How are we making the business work? <laughs> Which I feel like it's bled into my newsletter a lot the last year or so, which is like maybe not the best thing. So maybe I need to work on that as like my own practice. It's like to extract the, 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 my day job from my newsletter. But one of the things I have thought a lot about is distribution and the fact that like artists, to your point about artists having different intentions, one of the things that's been frustrating to me about the streaming era is that if you're an artist and you want your music to be heard by your friends, obviously you want to have it on something like a Spotify or a YouTube because that's like how most people consume music. But when you do that, that means it's going to probably more than likely be monetized or you have to go through one of the handful of streaming of, di of distribution companies that do exist. And those distribution companies exist because one, they want to get more people to sort of sign up for it and also so they can sort of monetize that sort of content. So it sort of like makes it so like, if you're like Adele or if you're just me who has some music that I'm just putting out that I kind of want other people to hear, all of a sudden we're like flattened to the sort of same platform and the same sort of level in a way that seems really strange, especially if you were to go back 30 years or so and you want to record music. Obviously someone could say, well, yeah, but like that CD you record, that CD or vinyl you recorded, someone could be listening to like Michael Jackson instead of listening to you, but it's like, that's not like quite the sort of same like sort of flattening that I feel streaming has sort of done the last 15 years. Certainly in, in places of distribution. I mean, like, besides, like, support your local record store. But, I mean, really the the, the sense of, of there being, like, one giant digital record store that certain people have the ability to put their music on various, like, easy-to-see shelves, like the homepage, is, is, is a crazy change. I wanted to go back to something that, that, that you, you said, Sherry, though, um, um, about music as a lost leader. Because, I mean, that's one of the things I think about a ton. Um, and I think about it a ton, not just in terms of our current moment, but in terms of, like, the long-term historical trajectories of music and of music in the United States especially, right? That, mu you know, the in New York City in 1880, they're, they're using music to sell beer, Right? Like it's a loss leader. The the musicians make some money, but the money is beer. It's not music, and that's true in the 1920s um, when it's being used to sell pianos. It's true in the 40s when it's being used to sell record players and stereos. It's true in the 60s when FM radio is being used to sell Cadillacs. I mean, it's true the whole time. And so thinking, I think, uh, thinking seriously about 
the relationship between music and multiple structures of capitalism, all of which kind of exist simultaneously. I think it can be um, uh, sometimes overly simplistic to think about it like from either the top down or the grass up, roots up, because both of these levels have like existed simultaneously and like dare I say it like dialectically <laughs> the whole the whole time. Um, and so I do think that like if music role as a lost leader is changing, either whether it's being pulled into a new set of like metaversic structures. <laughs> or I love that word, metaverse. First time hearing that. I like this yeah. word, metaverse. Oh <laughs> yeah, I dig. Or I'll, I'll or it. if it's being increasingly publicly funded in like an uh, like a federal works administration style, but like on a local civic like uh, you know uh, like semi socialistic structure. Like both of those are changes. It seems to me like in the political economy of music and the way it fits with like the production of value in a capitalist country. And both of those would be like really interesting, really big changes from where I'm sitting. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I guess like to go more on the latter, I this is why something I feel like we often like, like Liz and I will talk about like sort of like, pub, like, sort of like public parks and like shows at parks and sort of things like that. It's sort of like something that sort of exists outside of sort of most of these other things we've been talking about most of this evening. Not outside of all of it, but it's like record labels and like sort of publishing and like a lot of that stuff. Well, Okay, I won't get okay. Now that I say that, I'm like, well, maybe not actually. But like, a lot it exists a bit outside of some of the about uh, outside of some of those sort of conversations, and sort of can also get allows music to serve like sort of a different context than I like, think we often sort of associate associate with it. Yeah, and those more sort of lost leader kind of perspectives or context. Yeah, and um, thinking back specifically to the start of the um, pandemic, so a general trend also since like 2015 was kind of like the beginning of my journey in music tech, um, I noticed music was becoming like, uh, it was becoming increasingly less social. So like when I first started <laughs> writing in 2015, you could still send like messages on Spotify. Like they had like the inbox feature. Uh, I And I guess they killed it because not a lot of people used it, but like uh, I definitely used it. They had like a much deeper uh, Facebook integration, probably not the best example <laughs> <laughs> to talk about right now, but like, it was it was a lot more shareable and it leaned into like the very inherently social nature of music and I just saw that like gradually go away um, as the uh, just the feature sets became so much more like personalized and individualized. Mm -hmm. It's all about like you put on your own headphones, like you have your own sound world, and then the um, the pandemic hit. Um, I guess like the state of the live industry is a whole separate conversation, but uh, the kind of like immediately at that, at that time, um, you know, touring revenue was, was decimated and like there was a huge rush to uh, try to create the same like social experiences online. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we're like still, there, there's some exciting and like cool experiments happening still today and like trying to create better, trying to make music more social again. I think like, the the best iterations of like music metaverse experiences are actually genuinely just like fan communities coming together and like listening to music together and just like bonding through that. Um, it's like the K-pop as metaverse. <laughs> like it's already a metaverse. A little bit, but like yeah, it doesn't even have to be like K-pop level. It's like it can just be like groups like a fifteen to twenty people just coming together every week. Like there's like a whole culture around this. But um, 
then you also have like the uh like putting uh, an avatar of Lil Nas X into a Roblox show for like uh 10 minutes like is that the best iteration of it I don't know so th that that's like kind of a, another like strand of experimentation and just like a need this like desperate need to like make music more social again given the state of everything given the pandemic that like we're still um trying to figure out uh, in, in terms of like capturing there's always been a gap between the like cultural value and the market value of music. Mm -hmm. I think part of it is because sharing it is so fluid and social in a way that's like what the minute you like try to financialize that interaction, it just becomes very, very tricky. So I think it's just an ongoing challenge. Yeah. Oh, no, I was going to say one thing, just like to go back for one second. It's also what you said about the, the, the sort of the decaying of social features. I also just sort of thinking about the about TikTok, where it's like as an app, also it's one where you're just like the content just hits you and you're just sort of being inundated with it. And so you don't even really have the idea. I, I, maybe people do actually use the social features on TikTok. I actually don't really know. But like I, it seems to me very much an app where you're sort of like you open it up, you get the videos and you just sort of that's all you're sort of getting. So it just further, further progresses away from like sort of the much more static and much more like it's on you to sort of engage with a MySpace page to go click the thing, to go look, read the comments, see the top eight, like to do that kind of stuff versus like you just open the app and it's like the content's coming right at you. Yeah. And, and it does, it does seem like if you were going to have on if like streaming isn't working, right? But tech seems like it's a thing that exists in our world and is likely to, to just disappear. Um, and certainly the internet, they tell me, isn't going anywhere. Oh. Um, I, I know, David, I'm sorry. I try, <laughs> I really try. Oh, I, um, I want to join the Luddite reading group, by the way. <laughs> is that okay, talked about? Um, but, but figuring out a way to have that kind of, community online in, in a way that maybe is like financially sustainable for artists. I know that you, you've been looking into that. I'd love to hear more about it because I do think that there's a way to like square some of this circle <laughs> on, on, on the, the relationship between music and community and tech. Yeah. So um, I guess another uh, thinking back to like the pandemic and like the immediate like social form the immediate form that like socializing our music online took to like fill this void uh left by live music industry um there was a huge live streaming uh surge like dozens of different live streaming platforms i think launched in like 2020 it was like hard to keep track of it all um a lot of the uh biggest like activations or activities though coalesced around twitch um which uh I was like kind of laughing to myself. You we were saying like Twitch isn't making any money. It's like a, a separate issue, but also even just looking at like the looking at the platform, and this also applies to like Discord. Twitch and Discord started as um, gaming platforms. They were not music platforms. Uh, their feature set was definitely built for like gaming communities, um, and so uh, even still today, like you're seeing a lot of artists like trying to, uh, worst case scenario, trying to like uh, fit like a square peg uh, of an artist's career community into the round hole of like a gaming interface. Like the a lot of the like music experiences ended up being like um, being gamified, you know, the term gamification I heard like more and more and like uh, there's some, there's some artists for whom I think that works really well, but like um, 
also just a general theme is that like uh, any anyone who's like pr proposing one tech solution as the solution for the music industry is like that's immediate red flag. I think like the goal should be like uh, the goal should be choice and artists feeling like they have a choice. They know they can like kind of carve out their own path of like how they want to build their own career. And so that was like an immediate kind of red flag to me. Kind of like a lot of ways artists were engaging with fans was being like funneled into this very specific like gaming centric model that didn't fit certainly didn't fit everybody um and uh yeah i'll stop it, there for now it's really interesting like juxtaposing two things that i think really happened at the beginning of the pandemic to sort of fill the social void that was left for music you know there were a lot of people turning to like live streams and twitch and stuff and then there were like lots of people throwing shows in parks or like all over New York City. And there were like people saying, I'm gonna be at this coordinate in Prospect Park. And you know, people being like, oh, I got a solar power generator so we could do shows on the baseball diamond because we can't be inside places. And like, you know, I don't know, I'm thinking also about what you said about um, how we're constantly trying to square both like the uh, cultural role, um, cultural future of music and the market future what did you say the the cultural versus market value value yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah the cultural value and the market value and um i just think that yeah thinking about like that kind of like divergence of ways in which like people sort of like responded to like trying to find community um uh, when venues went away or is really interesting and it kind of reminds me of i wrote down something that was said on the last panel um, I can't remember who said it, but I just wrote down the words, how do we build power where we live? And I think that is a really powerful idea to kind of sort of like meditate on, especially if we're thinking about, um, I don't know, this kind of like crossroads we're at and like how we make music, communities, things that are more resilient to these like really powerful forces that are constantly trying to like extract. Um, from them and I do feel like ultimately there's just like this local element is really important um, in making music something that's like really part of the social fabric of our lives in um, a more robust way. This is gonna sound like a, a crazy juxtaposition, but like bear <laughs> with me. So I was reading today and, and I've like, wasn't really paying attention to it before this article. But Taylor Swift sold 500,000 vinyl copies <laughs> of her last record. 500,000 <laughs> copies. That's like, no one has sold that many copies of a vinyl record since the 90s, the early 90s, right? And yes, it's doing tremendous damage to the ecosystem of record pressing plants and independent distributors that has kept <laughs> that format alive. And I totally agree with all of that, plus the environmental degradation that comes out of vinyl records, and I agree with that too. But putting that aside for just one second, um, it is something that I think that I had been struggling with, thinking about streaming and the future of streaming, was this kind of like... Uh, I think I had been maybe, or this is that fact has been making me think that I've been undervaluing or under um, under underestimating the power of cultural change, because I kind of thought like commodity flows like kind of one way, and you can channel in different ways, but you can't go back, and that no one was ever going to trade more 
money for less music. And then a generation of Swifties totally proved me completely <laughs> wrong by buying 500,000 copies of that record. And it just made me realize, somehow, it, it made me think that a whole host of potential business much smaller much and a variety at a variety of different levels and a bunch of different spaces potential kind of opt-in business models or opt-in communities that are um far more far more robust far more survivable in the long term far more community centric or not are just like it really blew open my sense of like what was possible going forward i, I mean that's why i mentioned the thing about cds earlier though because I, because I do think it's very easy to get locked into the mindset of like we only have like streaming is 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 basically been here forever. We've always been streaming music. There was nothing before streaming. We only live in the streaming era. But CD sales and like digital sales again, like CD sales started like dipping and like I guess sort of like really hard in the mid aughts well after this, the shutdown of Napster, well after sort of the like sort of high period of, of music piracy. And the same thing, and then vinyl. I mean, <laughs> the point of the reason, I mean, Taylor Swift selling that many vinyl records to me is just sort of the like, I guess the last 20 years of like this slow like return of vinyl being a thing that like people used to like just buy old vinyl records and all of a sudden more bands started getting more into vinyl. And then that, that whole leg of the industry sort of got or less like more organ of the industry sort of got remade and then as it got remade it gets sort of be re-back co-opted by sort of the majors and then this is sort of what sort of the sort of current state that we have now and to your point about her sort of probably fucking up the vinyl supply chain Adele that, did it first though <laughs> Adele did it first um, but like that is also sort of the thing that we also sort of see ha like happening there but I think to the sort of the broader point you're sort of getting at is that like yeah I do think that like sometimes it's very like easy to sort of be like, oh yeah, we like are just constantly moving forward. It's sort of why I think when a couple years ago when NFTs, or it's like last year only, NFTs <laughs> were like really, really buzzy. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> um, it's been a long year. It's been a long last year. year. Is that it? It was 2021. It was a very different time. Um, it really was a different time. The spring of 2021. It was a different April, time. when I heard the words for the first time. <laughs> Non-fungible tokens. Um, but like I think I think that's why I think it was very easy for folks to sort of make this big leap to go, we had records, we had CDs, we had streaming, we have NFTs. It's like you can just move the needle so quickly without maybe also sort of asking the question of like, hold on, like maybe one, we didn't like we had CDs, CDs as you've talked about, as as we talked about on the show before, it's like CDs were like a thing that did exist that was created by a certain segment of the record industry, and they eventually got sort of killed and undermined again by a certain segment of the record industry. That wasn't like a unified thing where all the labels sort of came together to be like, we don't want CDs. That wasn't like a thing that kind of happened. They did that to collude on the prices to keep the prices high, but they didn't do that to try to like actually get rid of the actual format. And I sometimes think that like folks like sort of can kind of lose a little bit of that sort of like lock of sort of those sort of like other threads that exist and also probably why it's sometimes good to identify different segments of the in of different music industries because like electronic music or more like sort of indie rock or different things operate very differently and sort of take on these different forms in different ways yeah i mean it's not perfect and it's a whole conversation but band camp mp3s you know like i feel like Oftentimes, um, okay, like 
my main way of purchasing and listening to digital music is through Bandcamp or buying MP3s. And I'm sure there's a lot of people in the room who that's also true for. So it's kind of funny that like it oftentimes gets kind of like pushed in the corners, like this thing that's just not scalable. And it's like this like quaint sort of like that the people who buy music on Bandcamp or who buy MP3s are just kind of like in the corner, like trying to hold on to like an unscalable model that's like, you know, not interesting or something. But it works for, it's the kind of the best that a lot of corners of independent music have right now um, in terms of a model that actually is getting money into the pockets of a certain type of artist. Um, so I don't know. I can, to me, kind of feels part of what we're talking about also. Um, this is kind of just like a side note, but I think an important, uh, part of like the Taylor Swift 500,000 battle record. So, uh, I, there probably is no way to track this, but I really want to know how many of those records actually touch a turntable needle. <laughs> it's probably like very, it, very small. Does it matter though? It, so... So uh, it's, yeah, uh, in terms of like the dollars that Taylor and <laughs> label are getting, probably doesn't matter. Um, but also, so not only that, um, I'm pretty sure she released at least five or 10 different like versions of the uh, album cover. So it was like billed as a collectible, like a fan collectible and not as like, uh, I feel like it's a totally different motivation than like buying an MP3 on Bandcamp and like, actually listening to and like engaging with the music. Of course, don't want to generalize, you know, just don't want to generalize with artists, don't want to generalize with fans, but um, it's like, it's it's very much like a parallel to K-pop where there is this culture of let's just like collecting everything regardless of whether you listen to it. I think that is like seeping a lot into at least how like the bigger like celebrity artists are monetizing music, even if that music is not being listened to kind of in that format. Yeah, I mean, I really know that's such, that's such a good point. But I, I think thinking back to what we've been kind of talking about, about the uneasy fit between cultural value and financial value, it's it, it somehow it, that the uneasiness of that fit, the, the awkwardness of that fit, it seems to me we're, we're getting, we're talking about the, that it can open up a bunch of different kinds of spaces for engaging with music, for the ways that engaging with music can be made to like mean in people's lives um, and how that's used to like like signal to other people in cultural ways and whether that is or is not worth money and how that's worth money. Um, and it, so it, it does seem to me that be like, in a weird way, it, it's similar. Like it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's a choice about how spending money in relationship to music and cultural production makes you feel um, and who I guess gets that money. Cause I mean, my sense is the, like, I don't know that many like hardcore Swifties who are trying to assemble the clock but like um, <laughs> the four records fit together in a clock and they sell it like with a little external clock. But like it, I assume that they want to give money to Taylor Swift at some level in the way that like purchasing money on uh, uh, MP3s on Bandcamp can like give money to the artists. Like it's still, it seems to me that those to be c connected though <laughs> extremely different um, uh, examples of the same thing in some ways. I mean, I get that's one reason why to Sherry's question about are they actually like listening to the records is like a pretty good one to me because I actually am like kind of curious if folks are listening to the music because you, I assume you are listening to the MP3s, right? 
Yes. Yeah. So like, I feel like there is like something to be said about like where like your main point of purchase is like actually engaging. It's like how you are engaging with the music versus it just sort of being a sort of symbol of sort of your like, I guess sort of fandom or appreciation of the artist and sort of in sort of that kind of way. Because I do. Because I mean, the record. I mean, yeah. Just like the value. Like again, buying like five hundred thousand copies of a record being sold in twenty twenty two just has such a different meaning than it did probably in 1989, where if you wanted to hear, yeah, I guess would have been oh, Michael Jackson like bad. If you wanted to hear that like back then, you needed to buy the actual album. It wasn't just sort of like a trinket that you bought to signify that you liked Michael Jackson. It was like, oh no, I buy this because I want to hear his music, not because sure. I like am just a fan of his sort of brand or concept. Yeah, and I guess also like, I don't know, we were just sort of, we were talking more broadly about streaming. You were talking about like this event that sort of made you think that it is possible that people might be willing to engage music in a different economic arrangement than just like I pay nine ninety nine a month and I get access to everything. And I think that part of that kind of like we're at this crossroads. Where do we go from there? Here is like a big reckoning with like you know the fact that like it is never really like made sense to just pay ten dollars and be able to like listen to all the music in the world yes. um and that is kind of like this thing that this <laughs> thing that i think has to be part of this kind of like you know process of trying to figure out what comes next is just that model inherently is very unethical so to start wrapping things up a little bit um, we're going to kind of change temporalities and we're going to, instead of like taking off our forward looking hats and put on our backwards looking hats. I didn't think out that metaphor before I said it. <laughs> um, and so I thought we we're going to play like, uh, like a goofy, I've always wanted to do, like, this is my, uh, this is money for nothing's first ever live podcast. And I've always Ooh. wanted to do, thank you. Thank you. Um, and I've always wanted to do one of those really goofy semi cringe, like, little podcast games. Yes. <laughs> so um, what I want to do is think back and kind of a, a celebration of, of you, David, <laughs> um, to think back on the last five years that you have covered um, with, with, with such precision and clarity. And for us all to think about like, and just kind of go around, go around the circle and talk about like, what trends actually do we think impacted and shaped the music well, I guess I'm now always for the rest of my life going to call the music industries. <laughs> um, and what what or trend or what event really defined these last five five years of penny fractions? Um, I'll or yeah, unless someone has a thought, I I could hop first. Or just how do you feel? Go for it. Okay. Um, I guess like the big one to me, unfortunately, really is still like playlisting, and it's the idea of playlisting. Even though I find it like a really annoying one because like basically for two reasons that most people, like I'm sorry, when I say playlist, I mean like editorial playlists on Spotify and mm -hmm. other similar like music streaming platforms. And the reason why I find it just a really vexing one is because not that many people actually listen to those playlists like relatively. Like I think there was a, st a study in the UK, like the UK over the last couple of years have been doing a lot of like big industry, like music industries, S is good, um, studies. And, um, and one of the things that I, they ended up sort of pointing out is that, like, take Apple Music, for example. Apple Music, 
50 to 60% of listening on Apple Music just happens, it's just people going to find basically their favorite album or their favorite song. It doesn't involve any playlist of your own making or their own making. Spotify is actually something fairly similar where like most listening, a plurality of listening happens in in like playlists that you make, not editorial ones, not the algorithm or any of that bullshit. It's just stuff that you actually make. And when they act and like basic and Amazon is very similar where most listening happens on stuff that like is created by users. It's like most actual listening on streaming platforms is sort of like self-motivated. It's like not self-motivated, but it's like done by individuals like seeking out music they want or knowing what it is they like are seeking out. Where I felt like for at least a couple of years there, it was very like the algorithm is controlling everything. The algorithm is like making hits and it's like, no, that was just people. Like, that was just people listening to music, and we just contextualized it in a sort of more, like, I guess, slightly dystopian manner that, to me, was just serving Spotify and serving a lot of these companies to sort of make it seem like they had more power to control sort of the careers of artists. But, like, actually, most listening is still you deciding that, hey, I really like this playlist, or, hey, I really like this album. It isn't that you're just sort of being locked into the playlist zone. Yeah. <laughs> it was too good, dude. Sorry, it was sorry. too good. Wait, so can I pick the the thing that I think was like the I I was I had something in mind, but it was sort of like a definitive thing, but like in a positive direction. Go for it, yeah. You I'm know, a of the past Go. five years, because the there's, so there's so many things that could be pointed out that are like landmark, really bad things that have happened over the past five years. But when I er initially got the the prompt, like, what is a defining thing from the past five years like you know for me I, th I think it's really like the wave of organizing within music like with like UMA Music Workers Alliance and like all these other groups um, I just think back to like starting to cover this beat like five years ago and how like no one really wanted to talk about this stuff and like no one would go on the record I mean most people still don't want to go on the record with their names um, but it was like a lot of people were afraid to speak up. And I think that like we really, like over the past five years, have seen the power of strength in numbers, especially in terms of like people not being as afraid to kind of like talk about um, not just like even streaming, but like we're seeing with like the economics of touring and kind of like calling out um, all different sorts of like misbehavior in the, the music industry. Um, so I, I really do think that kind of like especially considering like how atomized music has become in the streaming era like the fact that like we're seeing these like real moments of like solidarity amongst artists and especially like independent artists or like artists who historically have not really been like um, considered in organizing spaces um, I think that it has been really important um, not that this is like uh, even necessary for like validating this discussion, but have people seen the playlist, the series on Netflix? Oh, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's such it's so bizarre that it exists. It's a it's a fictionalized series about um, like the first years of Spotify. Uh -huh. And it's a Swedish show. Oh. Uh, there are like. And so I mentioned this because there's a whole episode actually focused on artist organizing. Um, it's like the last um, episode. Like they, they renamed the Justice at Spotify uh, campaign. <laughs> yeah, I think I they even had like, like the penny per stream like demand in the show. <laughs> in yeah, the yeah, show? Yeah. That's trippy. It's, I, I have mixed feelings about kind of like how they ultimately like 
represented, but like it's there. Yeah. So like it's the fact that like those protests happened, I think is just, it's super significant. So they just reiterating that. They made yeah. a show about Daniel Eck. Yeah. It is basically oh. about Daniel Eck, um, Martin Lorenzen, the kind of chief business officer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And just like following each episode follows like a different like person on the founding team. It's bizarre. So but weird. <laughs> really boring. <laughs> That's no, yeah, I, that's why I like in a weird way wanted to watch it because like, how do you dramatize that story? But th- I think they, they do an interesting job with it. <laughs> if anyone has seen it, come find me and use it to talk about it. Um, I uh, was I kind of gave myself a challenge to not mention this um, during the panel, but I think actually um, can I mention like two trends? Yeah, not too much. Go for it. Go for it. One is the uh, creator economy as a concept that just has like that just has had so much VC money pour into it in terms of like creator platforms. Sure. Um, the idea of like the very individual DIY creator being like the pinnacle of just like making anything on the internet. Um, I think in music specifically, there's um, the specific trend is like uh, the DIY artist as a concept and the momentum around like DIY distribution, um, especially in terms of like acquisitions. So like, uh, I don't know if people know of these like companies, but like Sony Music buying AWOL was like huge, huge deal the last year. Um, Downtown Music buying like CD Baby. It's just like all this like M&A happening, people like buying up these like very long tail uh, DIY distribution platforms to just like get more market share, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, one of the biggest stories in terms of like changing the landscape. Yeah. Of like market share and power. And we'll keep playing yeah. out probably. Completely. Completely. It's just, yeah, it hasn't ended yet. Um, and then, um, second one also like very cliche, but I, I do believe, uh, blockchain is one of the <laughs> biggest, uh, stories of the last five years in terms of tech. O- if only because it's been, um, that I think has been one of the strongest like litmus tests tech wise for um, different like stakeholders openness to new technology. Hmm. Um, oof, I don't know if now is the time to like dive into a history of music and blockchain, but like there are a lot of like early music and blockchain startups that were trying to like bi- put all like rights management on chain. And I think the issue was not just technical, it was like very political, like no one wanted to cooperate with each other even though like that kind of solution arguably would like benefit the entire industry because they wouldn't have to exchange hundreds of emails trying to figure out just who owns what. I think music is like the only industry where that happens. Um, and then uh, kind of like the latest wave, you know, with all the hype that NFTs have and like all the scammy stuff that's happening. Um, I, I really do think it is for the most part, like independent unsigned artists and their communities that are like, they are setting the standard for everybody else. So that's like a very different, um, kind of dynamic from earlier when people were just trying to put all of music rights on chain. It's like much more scrappy and experimental. So still early stages of that, but I'm very excited to see how that uh, evolves. Yeah. And, and I mean, cause for me, I guess um, also maybe a cliche answer is uh, TikTok. Um, <laughs> of course. In, in that, I think that with TikTok, you're seeing... I really think of, of music as like a, a historically, well, what we think of as music as fundamentally historically bounded, right? That like there have been different 
musics. <laughs> We're just adding S's on everything today. Yes. yes. Um, there have been different musics throughout human existence. They, they, music as you know, it can be divided up in different ways in different societies and different cultures. Uh, certainly within the United States, there have been like very different experiences based on like different political economies. And and one of the things I think that um, you're seeing with TikTok is like a real f- that that. Sure, like TikTok as music discovery, TikTok as hits blowing up out of it. But I'm thinking about like the experience of the thing formerly known as music in app. That like that this is a different, a fundamentally different space for how music functions in society. It seems like or like recorded sound functions in society. That's really integrally paired with the visuals and and different and algorithmic delivery, I guess. Um, that feels somehow to me like a, a something that's different and maybe kind of like building on a long, slow build, building on a long, slow build <laughs> that uh, starts like with MTV and, and increasing kind of like integration between movies and music, even back to like the Broadway musicals, the big, you know, technical musicals of the 40s. Sam, you're about to go back to the 19th century. I know. I know I'm this. just okay, on my way there, baby. Yeah, it's not like you've written <laughs> hundreds of pages about this. It's not like you've written hundreds of pages about, like, late late 19th century music. You're right. You're just watching me going further and further. Yeah. So I feel like he's doing it again. Yeah. yeah um, but I, I do think it's different, and I think um, it will continue to change things. Did no, it just reminds me that, like, I've been reading about TikTok's streaming service, Rezo, and how they're, like, expanding into new markets and getting ready for this talk. I was just thinking a lot about, you You had had this question of, like, you know, what happens if Spotify has, like, less market share and it starts to be, like, more of a balance of um, uh, power with, like, Apple and Amazon or, you know, maybe even, like, the TikTok streaming service. And one thing that I do think, like, the next five years has to happen is, like, all of the criticism and all the pressure that artist communities and, like, organizers have put on Spotify, like, has to be equally reserved for Amazon Music and Apple Music and TikTok and YouTube and, like, all of these other companies, um, which I feel like haven't been um, subject to as much heat as Spotify has. It's like, we need to come for all of them. Yeah. Well, it's going to be a challenge. (laughs) Apple, unlike Spotify, does actually make money. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, I think with that (laughs) 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 struggles ahead of us, struggles behind, um, I think we're going to wrap this up. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for joining us. No, I want to say thank you guys so much for coming.